a shop girl, a thief, and a drunkard each encounter a crisis of conscience. How will they measure up? O. Henry, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. I'm happy to announce that based on downloads, we are in the top 1% of all podcasts. And the thing is, we always have been. You may notice that we don't top the charts. Not anymore, anyhow. So why the disparity? Near as I can figure, the charts are all run by algorithms, and each platform has their own. So the charts aren't reflective of downloads, but are weighted according to whatever is important to the platform. But on our end, judiciously created titles and professional audiobook quality are the things that we focus on. And for those who have found us, congratulations! I don't run ads or commercials, and I focus on things that make the listening experience truly wonderful for you. For 14 years now, I've always striven to increase the quality however I can, and thus enhance the end listener's experience. No ads in the middle of the story, no commercials to buy the latest printer, and no nonsense at the end. I just ask that if you like our show, please lend a hand. I really like where we've landed, so please help us out if you can. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and make a donation today. Last Friday, we had a huge horrible blanket of smoke blow into Utah from forest fires that weren't even in our state and the kids had to cancel opening night of their show. But since then, the smoke has dissipated, and the show has gone on. It's in a small amphitheater up the canyon, and it's a wonderful production. As the dusk turns to night, the bats come out, and you can see their silhouettes behind the actors' heads as they perform. Deli sandwiches with oil and vinegar remind me of outdoor theater. When I was a kid... I was invited to go with the adults to see Fiddler on the Roof at the Sundance Outdoor Theater. My aunts and uncles came down from Salt Lake and my dad ordered a bunch of deli sandwiches from a special sandwich shop. It was the first time I had had a sandwich with vinegar and oil and I was the only kid going with the adults. I had clearly arrived. So, on opening night of A Room Full of Glass, the kids' show, Scylla and I had sandwiches with oil and vinegar and watched our kids perform together. At one point, they were even dance partners. It was magical. And now for something completely different. O. Henry wrote over 300 short stories and was coined the American equivalent of Guy de Maupassant. The O. Henry Award is given out every year for outstanding short stories. This was his medium, and he used it very, very well. The stories in today's episodes I've dubbed Crisis of Conscience, Regular People, and Uncomfortable Decisions, because that's the thread all three of these stories have in common. The first, an unfinished story, I really love for the craft of writing involved. In only half-telling two stories, O. Henry delivers a clear and powerful message. I think it's quite remarkable. 
The other two stories are more typical narratives, each setting up folks who are trying to get back up on the straight and narrow and their terrible wrangle with the most evil adversary of all. Hope. Let's see how they do. And now, Crisis of Conscience, Regular People and Uncomfortable Decisions. Three short stories by O. Henry. An Unfinished Story We no longer groan and heap ashes upon our heads when the flames of Tophet are mentioned. For even the preachers have begun to tell us that God is radium, or ether, or some scientific compound, and that the worst we wicked ones may expect is a chemical reaction. This is a pleasing hypothesis, but there lingers yet some of the old goodly terror of orthodoxy. There are but two subjects upon which one may discourse with a free imagination, and without the possibility of being controverted. You may talk of your dreams, and you may tell what you heard a parrot say. Both Morpheus and the bird are incompetent witnesses, and your listener dare not attack your recital. The baseless fabric of a vision, then, shall furnish my theme, chosen with apologies and regrets, instead of the more limited field of pretty Polly's small talk. I had a dream that was so far removed from the higher criticism that it had to do with the ancient, respectable, and lamented bar of judgment theory. Gabriel had played his trump, and those of us who could not follow suit were arraigned for examination. I noticed at one side a gathering of professional bondsmen in solemn black and collars that buttoned behind. But it seemed there was some trouble about their real estate titles, and they did not appear to be getting any of us out. A fly cop, an angel policeman, flew over to me and took me by the left wing. Near at hand was a group of very prosperous-looking spirits arraigned for judgment. Do you belong with that bunch? the policeman asked. Who are they? was my answer. Why, said he, they are... But this irrelevant stuff is taking up space that the story should occupy. Dulcie worked in a department store. She sold Hamburg edging, or stuffed peppers, or automobiles, or other little trinkets such as they keep in department stores. Of what she earned, Dulcie received $6 per week. The remainder was credited to her and debited to somebody else's account in the ledger kept by... Oh, primal energy, you say, Reverend Doctor. Well then, in the ledger of primal energy. During her first year in the store, Dulcie was paid $5 per week. It would be instructive to know how she lived on that amount. Don't care? Very well. Probably you are interested in larger amounts. Six dollars is a larger amount. I will tell you how she lived on six dollars per week. One afternoon at six, when Dulcie was sticking her hat pin within an eighth of an inch of her medulla oblongata, she said to her chum Sadie, the girl that waits on you with her left side, Say, Sade, I made a date for dinner this evening with Piggy. You never did exclaimed Sadie admiringly. 
Well, ain't you the lucky one? Piggy's an awful swell, and he always takes a girl to swell places. He took Blanche up to the Hoffman house one evening, where they have swell music, and you see a lot of swells. You'll have a swell time, Dulce. Dulcie hurried homeward. Her eyes were shining, and her cheeks showed the delicate pink of life's, real life's, approaching dawn. It was Friday. She had fifty cents left of her last week's wages. The streets were filled with the rush-hour floods of people. The electric lights of Broadway were glowing, calling moths from miles, from leagues, from hundreds of leagues out of darkness around to come in and attend the singeing school. Men in accurate clothes, with faces like those carved on cherry stones by the old salts in sailors' homes, turned and stared at Dulcie as she sped, unheeding past them. Manhattan, the night-blooming Sirius, was beginning to unfold its dead-white, heavy-odored petals. Dulcie stopped in a store where goods were cheap and bought an imitation lace collar with her fifty cents. That money was to have been spent otherwise. Fifteen cents for supper, ten cents for breakfast, ten cents for lunch. Another dime was to be added to her small store of savings, and five cents was to be squandered for licorice drops, the kind that make your cheek look like the toothache and last as long. The licorice was an extravagance, almost a carouse. But what is life without pleasures? Dulcie lived in a furnished room. There is this difference between a furnished room and a boarding house. In a furnished room, other people do not know it when you go hungry. Dulcie went up to her room, the third floor back in a west side brownstone front. She lit the gas. Scientists tell us that the diamond is the hardest substance known. Their mistake. Landladies know of a compound beside which the diamond is as putty. They pack it in the tips of gas burners, and one may stand on a chair and dig at it in vain until one's fingers are pink and bruised. A hairpin will not remove it. Therefore, let us call it immovable. So Dulcie lit the gas. In its one-fourth candle-power glow, we will observe the room. Couch bed, dresser, table, washstand, chair. Of this much the landlady was guilty. The rest was Dulcie's. On the dresser were her treasures, a gilt china vase presented to her by Sadie, a calendar issued by a pickle works, a book on the divination of dreams, some rice powder in a glass dish, and a cluster of artificial cherries tied with a pink ribbon. Against the wrinkly mirror stood pictures of General Kitchener, William Muldoon, the Duchess of Marlborough, and Benvenuto Cellini. Against one wall was a plaster of Paris plaque of an O'Callaghan in a Roman helmet. Near it was a violent oleograph, of a lemon-colored child assaulting an inflammatory butterfly. This was Dulcie's final judgment in art, but it had never been upset. Her rest had never been disturbed by whispers of stolen copes. 
No critic had elevated his eyebrows at her infantile entomologist. Piggy was to call for her at seven. While she swiftly makes ready, let us discreetly face the other way and gossip. For the room, Dulcie paid two dollars per week. On weekdays, her breakfast cost ten cents. She made coffee and cooked an egg over the gaslight while she was dressing. On Sunday mornings, she feasted royally on veal chops and pineapple fritters at Billy's restaurant at a cost of 25 cents and tipped the waitress 10 cents. New York presents so many temptations for one to run into extravagance. She had her lunches in the department store restaurant at a cost of 60 cents for the week. Dinners were $1.05. The evening papers, show me a New Yorker going without his daily paper, came to six cents, and two Sunday papers, one for the personal column and the other to read, were ten cents. The total amounts to $4.76. Now, one has to buy clothes, and I give it up. I hear of wonderful bargains in fabrics, and of miracles performed with needle and thread, but I am in doubt. I hold my pen poised in vain. When I would add to Dulcie's life some of those joys that belong to woman by virtue of all the unwritten, sacred, natural, inactive ordinances of the equity of heaven. Twice she had been to Coney Island and had ridden the hobby horses. Tis a weary thing to count your pleasures by summers instead of by hours. Piggy needs but a word. When the girls named him, an undeserving stigma was cast upon the noble family of swine. The words of three letters lesson in the old blue spelling book begins with Piggy's biography. He was fat, he had the soul of a rat, the habits of a bat, and the magnanimity of a cat. He wore expensive clothes and was a connoisseur in starvation. He could look at a shop girl and tell you to an hour how long it had been since she had eaten anything more nourishing than marshmallows and tea. He hung about the shopping districts and prowled around in department stores with his invitations to dinner. Men who escort dogs upon the streets at the end of a string look down upon him. He is a type. I can dwell upon him no longer. My pen is not the kind intended for him. I am no carpenter. At ten minutes to seven, Dulcie was ready. She looked at herself in the wrinkly mirror. The reflection was satisfactory. The dark blue dress, fitting without a wrinkle. The hat, with its jaunty black feather. The but slightly soiled gloves, all representing self-denial. Even the food itself were vastly becoming. Dulcie forgot everything else for a moment except that she was beautiful and that life was about to lift a corner of its mysterious veil for her to observe its wonders. No gentleman had ever asked her out before. Now she was going for a brief moment into the glitter and exalted show. The girls said that Piggy was a spender. There would be a grand dinner and music and splendidly dressed ladies to look at, and things to eat, 
that strangely twisted the girl's jaws when they tried to tell about them. No doubt she would be asked out again. There was a blue pongee suit in a window that she knew. By saving 20 cents a week instead of 10, in, let's see, how it would run into years. But there was a second-hand store in 7th Avenue where... Somebody knocked at the door. Dulcie opened it. The landlady stood there with a spurious smile, sniffing for cooking by stolen gas. A gentleman's downstairs to see you, she said. Name is Mr. Wiggins. By such epithet was Piggy known to unfortunate ones who had to take him seriously. Dulcie turned to the dresser to get her handkerchief, and then she stopped still and bit her underlip hard. While looking in her mirror, she had seen Fairyland and herself, a princess, just awakening from a long slumber. She had forgotten one that was watching her with sad, beautiful, stern eyes. The only one there was to approve or condemn what she did. Straight and slender and tall, with a look of sorrowful reproach on his handsome, melancholy face, General Kitchener fixed his wonderful eyes on her out of his gilt photograph frame on the dresser. Dulcie turned like an automatic doll to the landlady. Tell him I can't go, she said dully. Tell him I'm sick or something. Tell him I'm not going out. After the door was closed and locked, Dulcie fell upon her bed, crushing her black tip and cried for ten minutes. General Kitchener was her only friend. He was Dulcie's ideal of a gallant knight. He looked as if he might have a secret sorrow, and his wonderful mustache was a dream, and she was a little afraid of that stern yet tender look in his eyes. She used to have little fancies that he would call at the house sometime and ask for her, with his sword clanking against his high boots. Once, when a boy was rattling a piece of chain against a lamppost, she had opened the window and looked out. But there was no use. She knew that General Kitchener was away over in Japan, leading his army against the savage Turks, and he would never step out of his gilt frame for her. Yet one look from him had vanquished Piggy that night. Yes, for that night. When her cry was over, Dulcie got up and took off her best dress and put on her old blue kimono. She wanted no dinner. She sang two verses of Sammy. Then she became intensely interested in a little red speck on the side of her nose. And after that was attended to, she drew up a chair to the rickety table and told her fortune with an old deck of cards. The horrid, impudent thing, she said aloud and I never gave him a word or a look to make him think it. At nine o'clock, Dulcie took a tin box of crackers and a little pot of raspberry jam out of her trunk and had a feast. She offered General Kitchener some jam on a cracker, but he only looked at her as the Sphinx would have looked at a butterfly, if there are butterflies in the desert. Don't eat if you don't want to, said Dulcie and don't put on so many airs and scold so with your eyes. 
I wonder if you'd be so superior and snippy if you had to live on six dollars a week. It was not a good sign for Dulcie to be rude to General Kitchener. And then she turned Benvenuto Cellini face downward with a severe gesture. But that was not inexcusable, for she had always thought he was Henry VIII, and she did not approve of him. At half-past nine, Dulcie took a last look at the pictures on the dresser, turned out the light, and skipped into bed. It's an awful thing to go to bed with a good-night look at General Kitchener, William Muldoon, the Duchess of Marlborough, and Benvenuto Cellini. This story doesn't really get anywhere at all. The rest of it comes later, sometime when Piggy asks Dulcie again to dine with him and she is feeling lonelier than usual, and General Kitchener happens to be looking the other way, and then, as I said before, I dreamed that I was standing near a crowd of prosperous-looking angels, and a policeman took me by the wing and asked if I belonged with them. Who are they? I asked. Why, said he, they are the men who hired working girls, and paid him five or six dollars a week to live on. Are you one of the bunch? Not on your immortality, said I. I'm only the fellow that set fire to an orphan asylum and murdered a blind man for his pennies. A Retrieved Reformation A guard came to the prison shoe shop where Jimmy Valentine was assiduously stitching uppers, and escorted him to the front office. There, the warden handed Jimmy his pardon, which had been signed that morning by the governor. Jimmy took it in a tired kind of way. He had served nearly ten months of a four-year sentence. He had expected to stay only about three months at the longest, when a man with as many friends on the outside as Jimmy Valentine had is received in the stir, it is hardly worthwhile to cut his hair. Now, Valentine, said the warden, you'll go out in the morning. Brace up and make a man of yourself. You're not a bad fellow at heart. Stop cracking safes and live straight. Me, said Jimmy in surprise. Why, I never cracked a safe in my life. Oh, no laughed the warden. Of course not. Let's see now. How was it you happened to get sent up on that Springfield job? Was it because you wouldn't prove an alibi for fear of compromising somebody in extremely high-toned society? Or was it simply a case of a mean old jury that had it in for you? It's always one or the other with you innocent victims. Me? said Jimmy, still blankly virtuous. Why, warden? I was never in Springfield in my life. Take him back, Cronin, said the warden, and fix him up with outgoing clothes. Unlock him at seven in the morning and let him come to the bullpen. Better think over my advice, Valentine. At a quarter past seven on the next morning, Jimmy stood in the warden's outer office. He had on a suit of the villainously fitting, ready-made clothes and a pair of the stiff, squeaky shoes that the state furnishes to its discharged, compulsory guests. The clerk handed him a railroad ticket and the five-dollar bill, with which the law expected him to rehabilitate himself into good citizenship and prosperity. 
the warden gave him a cigar and shook hands. Valentine 9762 was chronicled on the books Pardoned by Governor, and Mr. James Valentine walked out into the sunshine. Disregarding the song of the birds, the waving green trees, and the smell of the flowers, Jimmy headed straight for a restaurant. There he tasted the first sweet joys of liberty in the shape of a broiled chicken and a bottle of white wine, followed by a cigar a grade better than the one the warden had given him. From there he proceeded leisurely to the depot. He tossed a quarter into the hat of a blind man sitting by the door and boarded his train. Three hours set him down in a little town near the state line. He went to the cafe of one Mike Dolan and shook hands with Mike, who was alone behind the bar. Sorry we couldn't make it sooner, Jimmy, me boy, said Mike, but we had that protest from Springfield to buck against, and the governor nearly balked. Feeling all right? Fine, said Jimmy. Got my key? He got his key and went upstairs, unlocking the room of a door at the rear. Everything was just as he had left it. There on the floor was still Ben Price's collar button that had been torn from that eminent detective's shirt band when they had overpowered Jimmy to arrest him. Pulling out from the wall a folding bed, Jimmy slid back a panel in the wall and dragged out a dust-covered suitcase. He opened this and gazed fondly at the finest set of burglar's tools in the East. It was a complete set, made of specially tempered steel, the latest designs in drills, punches, braces and bits, jimmies, clamps, and augers, with two or three novelties invented by Jimmy himself in which he took pride. Over $900 they had cost him to have made at blank, a place where they make such things for the profession. In half an hour, Jimmy went downstairs and through the cafe. He was now dressed in tasteful and well-fitting clothes and carried his dusted and cleaned suitcase in his hand. Got anything on? asked Mike Dolan genially. Me? said Jimmy in a puzzled tone. I don't understand. I'm representing the New York Amalgamated Short Snap Biscuit Cracker and Frazzled Wheat Company. This statement delighted Mike to such an extent that Jimmy had to take a seltzer and milk on the spot. He never touched hard drinks. A week after the release of Valentine 9762, there was a neat job of safe burglary done in Richmond, Indiana, with no clue to the author. A scant $800 was all that was secured. Two weeks after that, a patented, improved, burglar-proof safe in Logansport was opened like a cheese to the tune of $1,500 currency, securities and silver untouched. That began to interest the rogue catchers. Then an old-fashioned bank safe in Jefferson City became active and threw out of its crater an eruption of banknotes amounting to $5,000. The losses were now high enough to bring the matter up to Ben Price's class of work. By comparing notes, a remarkable similarity in the methods of the burglaries was noticed. Ben Price investigated the scenes of the robberies and was heard to remark, That's Dandy Jim Valentine's autograph. He's resumed business. Look at that combination knob. 
jerked out as easy as pulling up a radish in wet weather. He's got the only clams that can do it. And look how clean those tumblers were punched out. Jimmy never has to drill but one hole. Yes, I guess I want Mr. Valentine. He'll do his bit next time without any short time or clemency foolishness. Ben Price knew Jimmy's habits. He had learned them while working up the Springfield case. Long jumps, quick getaways, no confederates, and a taste for good society. These ways had helped Mr. Valentine to become noted as a successful dodger of retribution. It was given out that Ben Price had taken up the trail of the elusive cracksman, and other people with burglar-proof safes felt more at ease. One afternoon, Jimmy Valentine and his suitcase climbed out of the mail hack in Elmore, a little town five miles off the railroad down in the Blackjack country of Arkansas. Jimmy, looking like an athletic young senior just home from college, went down the board sidewalk toward the hotel. A young lady crossed the street, passed him at the corner, and entered a door over which was the sign, The Elmore Bank. Jimmy Valentine looked into her eyes, forgot what he was, and became another man. She lowered her eyes and colored slightly. Young men of Jimmy's style and looks were scarce in Elmore. Jimmy collared a boy who was loafing on the steps of the bank as if he were one of the stockholders and began to ask him questions about the town, feeding him dimes at intervals. By and by, the young lady came out, looking royally unconscious of the young man with the suitcase, and went her way. Isn't that young lady Polly Simpson? asked Jimmy, with specious guile. Nah, said the boy. She's Annabelle Adams. Her pa owns the bank. What'd you come to Elmore for? Is that a gold watch chain? I'm going to get a bulldog. Got any more dimes? Jimmy went to the planter's hotel, registered as Ralph D. Spencer, and engaged a room. He leaned on the desk and declared his platform to the clerk. He said he had come to Elmore to look for a location to go into business. How was the shoe business now in the town? He had thought of the shoe business. Was there an opening? The clerk was impressed by the clothes and manner of Jimmy. He himself was something of a pattern of fashion to the thinly gilded youth of Elmore, but he now perceived his shortcomings. While trying to figure out Jimmy's manner of tying his foreign hand, he cordially gave information. Yes, there ought to be a good opening in the shoe line. There wasn't an exclusive shoe store in the place. The dry goods and general stores handled them. Business in all lines was fairly good. Hoped Mr. Spencer would decide to locate in Elmore. He would find it a pleasant town to live in, and the people very sociable. Mr. Spencer thought he would stop over in the town a few days and look over the situation. No, the clerk needn't call the boy. He would carry up his suitcase himself. It was rather heavy. Mr. Ralph Spencer, the phoenix that arose from Jimmy Valentine's ashes, ashes left by the flame of a sudden and alterative attack of love, remained in Elmore and prospered. He opened a shoe store and secured a good run of trade. Socially, he was also a success and made many friends, and he accomplished the wish of his heart. 
he met Miss Annabel Adams and became more and more captivated by her charms. At the end of a year, the situation of Ralph Spencer was this. He had won the respect of the community. His shoe store was flourishing, and he and Annabel were engaged to be married in two weeks. Mr. Adams, the typical plodding country banker, approved of Spencer. Annabel's pride in him almost equaled her affection. He was as much at home in the family of Mr. Adams and that of Annabel's married sister as if he were already a member. One day, Jimmy sat down in his room and wrote this letter, which he mailed to the safe address of one of his old friends in St. Louis. Dear old pal, I want you to be at Sullivan's place in Little Rock next Wednesday night at nine o'clock. I want you to wind up some little matters for me. And also, I want to make you a present of my kit of tools. I know you'll be glad to get them. You couldn't duplicate the lot for a thousand dollars. Say, Billy, I've quit the old business a year ago. I've got a nice store. I'm making an honest living. And I'm going to marry the finest girl on earth two weeks from now. It's the only life, Billy, the straight one. I wouldn't touch a dollar of another man's money now for a million. After I get married, I'm going to sell out and go west, where there won't be so much danger of having old scores brought up against me. I tell you, Billy, she's an angel. She believes in me. And I wouldn't do another crooked thing for the whole world. Be sure to be at Sully's, for I must see you. I'll bring along the tools with me. Your old friend, Jimmy. On the Monday night after Jimmy wrote this letter, Ben Price jogged unobtrusively into Elmore in a livery buggy. He lounged about town in his quiet way until he found out what he wanted to know. From the drugstore across the street from Spencer's shoe store, he got a good look at Ralph D. Spencer. Going to marry the banker's daughter, are you, Jimmy? said Ben to himself softly. Well... I don't know. The next morning, Jimmy took breakfast at the Adamses. He was going to Little Rock that day to order his wedding suit and buy something nice for Annabelle. That would be the first time he had left town since he came to Elmore. It had been more than a year now since those last professional jobs, and he thought he could safely venture out. After breakfast, quite a family party went downtown together. Mr. Adams, Annabelle, Jimmy, and Annabelle's married sister with her two little girls, aged five and nine. They came by the hotel where Jimmy still boarded, and he ran up to his room and brought along his suitcase. Then they went on to the bank. There stood Jimmy's horse and buggy and Dolph Gibson, who was going to drive him over to the railroad station. All went inside the high-carved oak railings into the banking room. Jimmy included, for Mr. Adams' future son-in-law was welcome anywhere. The clerks were pleased to be greeted by the good-looking, agreeable young man who was going to marry Miss Annabelle. Jimmy set his suitcase down. Annabelle, whose heart was bubbling with happiness and lively youth, put on Jimmy's hat and picked up the suitcase. Wouldn't I make a nice drummer? said Annabelle. My, Ralph, how heavy it is! Feels like it was full of gold bricks. A lot of nickel-plated shoehorns in there, said Jimmy coolly, that I'm going to return. 
Thought I'd save express charges by taking them up. I'm getting awfully economical. The Elmore Bank had just put in a new safe and vault. Mr. Adams was very proud of it and insisted on an inspection by everyone. The vault was a small one, but it had a new patented door. It fastened with three solid steel bolts thrown simultaneously with a single handle and had a time lock. Mr. Adams beamingly explained its workings to Mr. Spencer, who showed a courteous but not too intelligent interest. The two children, May and Agatha, were delighted by the shining metal and funny clock and knobs. While they were thus engaged, Ben Price sauntered in and leaned on his elbow, looking casually inside between the railings. He told the teller that he didn't want anything. He was just waiting for a man he knew. Suddenly there was a scream or two from the women and a commotion. Unperceived by the elders, May, the nine-year-old girl in a spirit of play, had shut Agatha in the vault. She had then shot the bolts and turned the knob of the combination as she had seen Mr. Adams do. The old banker sprang to the handle and tugged at it for a moment. The door can't be opened, he groaned. The clock hasn't been wound, nor the combinations set. Agatha's mother screamed again hysterically. Hush, said Mr. Adams, raising his trembling hand. All be quiet for a moment. Agatha, he called as loudly as he could. Listen to me. During the following silence, they could just hear the faint sound of the child wildly shrieking in the dark vault in a panic of terror. My precious darling, wailed the mother. She will die of fright. Open the door. Oh, break it open. Can't you men do something? There isn't a man nearer than Little Rock who can open that door, said Mr. Adams in a shaky voice. My God. Spencer, what shall we do? That child, she can't stand it long in there. There isn't enough air, and besides, she'll go into convulsions from fright. Agatha's mother, frantic now, beat the door of the vault with her hands. Somebody wildly suggested dynamite. Annabel turned to Jimmy, her large eyes full of anguish, but not yet despairing. To a woman, nothing seems quite impossible to the powers of the man she worships. Can't you do something, Ralph? Try, won't you? He looked at her with a queer, soft smile on his lips and in his keen eyes. Annabel, he said, give me that rose you are wearing, will you? Hardly believing that she heard him aright, she unpinned the bud from the bosom of her dress and placed it in his hand. Jimmy stuffed it into his vest pocket, threw off his coat, and pulled up his shirt sleeves. With that act, Ralph D. Spencer passed away, and Jimmy Valentine took his place. Get away from the door, all of you, he commanded shortly. He set his suitcase on the table and opened it out flat. From that time on, he seemed to be unconscious of the presence of anyone else. He laid out the shining, queer implements swiftly and orderly, whistling softly to himself as he always did when at work. In a deep silence and immovable, the others watched him as if under a spell. In a minute, 
Jimmy's pet drill was biting smoothly into the steel door. In ten minutes, breaking his own burglarious record, he threw back the bolts and opened the door. Agatha, almost collapsed but safe, was gathered into her mother's arms. Jimmy Valentine put on his coat and walked outside the railings towards the front door. As he went, he thought he heard a faraway voice that he once knew call Ralph, but he never hesitated. At the door, a big man stood somewhat in his way. Hello, Ben, said Jimmy, still with his strange smile. Got around at last, have you? Well, let's go. I don't know that it makes much difference now. And then, Ben Price acted rather strangely. Guess you're mistaken, Mr. Spencer, he said. Don't believe I recognize you. Your buggy's waiting for you, ain't it? And Ben Price turned and strolled down the street. A Blackjack Bargainer The most disreputable thing in Yancey Gorey's law office was Gorey himself, sprawled in his creaky old armchair. The rickety little office, built of red brick, was set flush with the street, the main street of the town of Bethel. Bethel rested upon the foothills of the Blue Ridge. Above it, the mountains were piled to the sky. Far below it, the turbid Catawba gleamed yellow along its disconsolate valley. The June day was at its sultriest hour. Bethel dozed in the tepid shade. Trade was not. It was so still that Gory, reclining in his chair, distinctly heard the clicking of the chips in the grand jury room, where the courthouse gang was playing poker. From the open back door of the office, a well-worn path meandered across the grassy lot to the courthouse. The treading out of that path had cost Gory all he ever had. First, inheritance of a few thousand dollars. Next, the old family home. And latterly, the last shreds of his self-respect and manhood. The gang had cleaned him out. The broken gambler had turned drunkard and parasite. He had lived to see this day come when the men who had stripped him denied him a seat at the game. His word was no longer to be taken. The daily bouts at cards had arranged itself accordingly, and to him was assigned the ignoble part of the onlooker. The sheriff, the county clerk, a sportive deputy, a gay attorney, and a chalk-faced man hailing from the valley sat at table, and the sheared one was thus tacitly advised to go and grow more wool. Soon wearying of his ostracism, Gory had departed for his office, muttering to himself as he unsteadily traversed the unlucky pathway. After a drink of corn whiskey from a demijohn under the table, he had flung himself into the chair, staring in a sort of maudlin apathy out at the mountains immersed in the summer haze. The little white patch he saw away up on the side of Blackjack was Laurel, the village near which he had been born and bred. There also was the birthplace of the feud between the Gorys 
and the coal trains. Now, no direct heir of the Gories survived except this plucked and singed bird of misfortune. To the coal trains also, but one male supporter was left, Colonel Abner Coltrane, a man of substance and standing, a member of the state legislature, and a contemporary with Gorey's father. The feud had been a typical one of the region. It had left a red record of hate, wrong, and slaughter. But Yancey Gorey was not thinking of feuds. His befuddled brain was hopelessly attacking the problem of the future maintenance of himself and his favorite follies. Of late, old friends of the family had seen to it that he had whereof to eat and a place to sleep. But whiskey they would not buy for him, and he must have whiskey. His law business was extinct. No case had been entrusted to him in two years. He had been a borrower and a sponge, and it seemed that if he fell no lower, it would be from lack of opportunity. One more chance, he was saying to himself. If he had one more stake at the game, he thought he could win. But he had nothing left to sell, and his credit was more than exhausted. He could not help smiling, even in his misery, as he thought of the man to whom, six months before, he had sold the old gory homestead. There had come from Bakyan, in the mountains, two of the strangest creatures, a man named Pike Garvey and his wife. Bakyan, with a wave of the hand toward the hills, was understood among the mountaineers to designate the remotest fastnesses, the unplumbed gorges, the haunts of lawbreakers, the wolf's den, and the boudoir of the bear. In the cabin far up on Black Jack's shoulder, in the wildest part of these retreats, this odd couple had lived for twenty years. They had neither dog nor children to mitigate the heavy silence of the hills. Pike Garvey was little known in the settlements, but all who had dealt with him pronounced him crazy as a loon. He acknowledged no occupation save that of a squirrel hunter but he moonshined occasionally by way of diversion. Once the revenues had dragged him from his lair, fighting silently and desperately like a terrier, and he had been sent to state's prison for two years. Released, he popped back into his hole like an angry weasel. Fortune, passing over many anxious wooers, made a freakish flight into Black Jack's bosky pockets to smile upon Pike and his faithful partner. One day, a party of spectacled, knickerbockered, and altogether absurd prospectors invaded the vicinity of the Garvey's cabin. Pike lifted his squirrel rifle off the hooks and took a shot at them at long range on the chance of there being revenues. Happily, he missed, and the unconscious agents of good luck drew nearer, disclosing their innocence of anything resembling law or justice. Later on, they offered the Garveys an enormous quantity of ready, green, crisp money for their thirty-acre patch of cleared land, mentioning, as an excuse for such a mad action, some irrelevant and inadequate nonsense about a bed of mica underlying the said property. When the Garveys became possessed of so many dollars that they faltered in computing them, the deficiencies of life on blackjack began to grow prominent. 
Pike began to talk of new shoes, a hogshead of tobacco to set in the corner, a new lock to his rifle, and leading Martella to a certain spot on the mountainside, he pointed out to her how a small cannon, doubtless a thing not beyond the scope of their fortune and price, might be planted so as to command and defend the sole accessible trail to the cabin, to the confusion of revenues and meddling strangers forever. But Adam reckoned without his Eve. These things represented to him the applied power of wealth. But there slumbered in his dingy cabin an ambition that soared far above his primitive wants. Somewhere in Mrs. Garvey's bosom still survived a spot of femininity unstarved by twenty years of blackjack. For so long a time, the sounds in her ears had been the scaly barks dropping in the woods at noon, and the wolves singing among the rocks at night, and it was enough to have purged her of vanities. She had grown fat and sad and yellow and dull. But when the means came, she felt a rekindled desire to assume the perquisites of her sex, to sit at tea tables, to buy futile things, to whitewash the hideous veracity of life with a little form and ceremony. So she coldly vetoed Pike's proposed system of fortifications and announced that they would descend upon the world and gyrate socially. And thus at length it was decided and the thing done. The village of Laurel was their compromise between Mrs. Garvey's preference for one of the large valley towns and Pike's hankering for primeval solitudes. Laurel yielded a halting round of feeble social distractions comportable with Martella's ambitions, and was not entirely without recommendation to Pike, its contiguity to the mountains presenting advantages for sudden retreat, in case fashionable society should make it advisable. Their descent upon Laurel had been coincident with Yancey Gori's feverish desire to convert property into cash, and they bought the old Gory homestead, paying $4,000 ready money into the spendthrift's shaking hands. Thus it happened that while the disreputable last of the Gorys sprawled in his disreputable office, at the end of his row, spurned by the cronies whom he had gorged, strangers dwelt in the halls of his father's. A cloud of dust was rolling, slowly, up the parched street, with something traveling in the midst of it. A little breeze wafted the cloud to one side, and a new, brightly painted carryall, drawn by a slothful gray horse, became visible. The vehicle deflected from the middle of the street as it neared Gory's office, and stopped in the gutter directly in front of his door. On the front seat sat a gaunt, tall man, dressed in black broadcloth, his rigid hands incarcerated in yellow kid gloves. On the back seat was a lady who triumphed over the June heat. Her stout form was armored in a skin-tight silk dress of the description known as changeable, being a gorgeous combination of shifting hues. She sat erect, waving a much-ornamented fan, with her eyes fixed stonily far down the street. However Martella Garvey's heart might be rejoicing at the pleasures of her new life, Black Jack had done his work with her exterior. He had carved her countenance to the image of emptiness 
and inanity, had imbued her with the stolidity of his crags and the reserve of his hushed interiors. She always seemed to hear, whatever her surroundings were, the scaly barks falling and pattering down the mountainside. She could always hear the awful silence of Blackjack sounding through the stillest of nights. Gory watched this solemn equipage as it drove to his door with only faint interest. But when the lank driver wrapped the reins around his whip, awkwardly descended, and stepped into the office, he rose unsteadily to receive him, recognizing Pike Garvey, the new, the transformed, the recently civilized. The mountaineer took the chair Gory offered him. They who cast doubts upon Garvey's soundness of mind had a strong witness in the man's countenance. His face was too long, a dull saffron in hue, and immobile as a statue's. Pale blue, unwinking round eyes, without lashes, added to the singularity of his gruesome visage. Gory was at a loss to account for the visit. Everything all right at Laurel, Mr. Garvey? he inquired. Everything is all right, sir. The man of please is Mrs. Garvey and me with the property. Mrs. Garvey likes the old place, and she likes the neighborhood. Society is what she allows she wants, and she is getting of it. The Rogerses, the Hapgoods, the Pratts, and the Troys have been to see Mrs. Garvey, and she haven't meals to most of their houses. The best folks have axed her to different kinds of doings. I can't say, Mr. Gorey, that such thing suits me. For me, give me them there. Garvey's huge yellow-gloved hand flourished in the direction of the mountains. That's where I belong, amongst the wild honeybees and the bars. But that ain't what I come for to say, Mr. Gorey. There's something you got what me and Mrs. Garvey wants to buy. Buy? echoed Gorey. From me? Then he laughed harshly. I reckon you're mistaken about that. I reckon you are mistaken about that. I sold out to you, as you yourself expressed it, lock, stock, and barrel. There isn't even a ramrod left to sell. You got it, and Wins wants it. Take the money, says Mrs. Garvey, and buy it fair and square. Gorey shook his head. The cupboard's bare, he said. We've riz, pursued the mountaineer, undeflected from his object, a heap. We was poor as possums, but now we could have folks to dinner every day. We've been recognized, Mrs. Garvey says, by the best society. But there's something we need we ain't got. She says it ought to have been put in the inventory of the sale, but it ain't there. Take the money then, says she, and buy it, fire and square. Out with it said Gorey, his racked nerves growing impatient. Garvey threw his slouch hat upon the table and leaned forward, fixing his unblinking eyes upon Gorey's. There's an old feud, he said distinctly and slowly, between Ewan's and the Coltrane's. Gorey frowned ominously. To speak of his feud to a feudist is a serious breach of the mountain etiquette, the man from back yon knew it as well as the lawyer did. No offense, he went on, but purely in the way of business. Mrs. Garvey have studied all about feuds. 
Most of the quality folks in the mountains have them. The Settles and the Gophers, the Rankins and the Boyds, the Silers and the Galloways have all been carrying on feuds from twenty to a hundred year. The last man to drop was when your uncle, Judge Paisley Gorey, adjourned court and shot Len Coltrane from the bench. Mrs. Garvey and me, we come from the poor white trash. Nobody wouldn't pick a feud with Wiggins. No more than with a family of tree toads. Quality people everywhere, says Mrs. Garvey, has feuds. Wiggins ain't quality, but we're buying into it as far as we can. Take the money then, says Mrs. Garvey, and buy Mr. Gorey's feud fire and square. The squirrel hunter straightened a leg half across the room, drew a roll of bills from his pocket, and threw them on the table. There's two hundred dollars, Mr. Gorey, what you'd call a fair price for a feud that has been allowed to run down like yourn have. There's only you left to carry on your side of it, and you'd make mighty poor killing. I'll take it off your hands, and I'll set me and Mrs. Garvey up among the quality. There's the money. The little roll of currency on the table slowly untwisted itself, writhing and jumping as its folds relaxed. In the silence that followed Garvey's last speech, the rattling of the poker chips in the courthouse could be plainly heard. Gorey knew that the sheriff had just won a pot, for the subdued whoop with which he always greeted a victory floated across the square upon the crinkly heat waves. Beads of moisture stood on Gorey's brow. Stooping, he drew the wicker-covered demijohn from under the table and filled a tumbler from it. A little corn liquor, Mr. Garvey? Of course you are joking about what you spoke of. Opens quite a new market, doesn't it? Feuds. Prime, two fifty to three. Feuds, slightly damaged, two hundred, I believe you said, Mr. Garvey. Gorey laughed self-consciously. The mountaineer took the glass Gorey handed him and drank the whiskey without a tremor of the lids of his staring eyes. The lawyer applauded the feat by a look of envious admiration. He poured his own drink and took it like a drunkard, by gulps and with shudders at the smell and taste. Two hundred, repeated Garvey. There's the money. A sudden passion flared up in Gorey's brain. He struck the table with his fist. One of the bills flipped over and touched his hand. He flinched as if something had stung him. Do you come to me? he shouted. Seriously, with such a ridiculous, insulting, darned fool proposition? It's fair and square, said the squirrel hunter. But he reached out his hand as if to take back the money. And then Gorey knew that his own flurry of rage had not been from pride or resentment, but from anger at himself knowing that he would set foot in the deeper depths that were being opened to him. He turned in an instant from an outraged gentleman to an anxious chafferer, recommending his goods. Don't be in a hurry, Garvey, he said, his face crimson and his speech thick. I accept your proposition. Though it's dirt cheap at two hundred, it trade... It's all right when both purchaser and buyer are satisfied. Shall I wrap it up for you, Mr. Garvey? 
Garvey rose and shook out his broadcloth. Mrs. Garvey will be pleased. You are out of it. And it stands Coltrane and Garvey. Just a scrap of writing, Mr. Gorey, you being a lawyer, to show we trade it. Gorey seized a sheet of paper and a pen. The money was clutched in his moist hand. Everything else suddenly seemed to grow trivial and light. Bill of sale, by all means. Write title and interest in and to forever warrant and... No, Garvey will have to leave that out. Defend, said Gorey with a loud laugh. You'll have to defend this title yourself. The mountaineer received the amazing screed that the lawyer handed him, folded it with immense labor, and laced it carefully in his pocket. Gorey was standing near the window. Step here, he said, raising his finger, and I'll show you your recently purchased enemy. There he goes, down the other side of the street. The mountaineer crooked his long frame to look through the window at the direction indicated by the other. Colonel Abner Coltrane, an erect, portly gentleman of about fifty, wearing the inevitable long, double-breasted frock coat of the southern lawmaker and an old high silk hat, was passing on the opposite sidewalk. As Garvey looked, Gorey glanced at his face. If there be such a thing as a yellow wolf, here was its counterpart. Garvey snarled as his unhuman eyes followed the moving figure, disclosing long, amber-colored fangs. Is that him? Why, that's the man who sent me the penitentiary once. He used to be district attorney, said Gorey carelessly. And, by the way, he's a first-class shot. I can hit a squirrel's eye at a hundred yard, said Garvey. So that there's Coltrane. I made a better trade than I was thinking. I'll take care of this feud, Mr. Gorey, better than you ever did. He moved toward the door, but lingered there, betraying a slight perplexity. Anything else today? inquired Gorey with frothy sarcasm. Any family traditions, ancestral ghosts, or skeletons in the closet? Prices as low as the lowest. There was another thing, replied the unmoved squirrel hunter, that Mrs. Garvey was thinking of. Tain't so much in my line as the other, but she wanted particular that I should inquire, and if you was willing, pay for it, she says, fire and square. There's a burying ground, as you know, Mr. Gorey, in the yard of your old place, under the cedars. And then that lies there is your folks what was killed by the coal trains. The monuments has the names on them. Mrs. Garvey says a family burying ground is a sure sign of quality. And she says if we get the feud, there's something else ought to go with it. The names on them monuments is Gorey, but they can be changed to iron by... Go! Go! screamed Gorey his face turning purple. He stretched out both hands toward the mountaineer, his fingers hooked and shaking. Go, you ghoul! Even a Chinaman protects the graves of his ancestors. Go! The squirrel hunter slouched out of the door to his carry-all. While he was climbing over the wheel, Gory was collecting, with feverish celerity, the money that had fallen from his hand to the floor. As the vehicle slowly turned about, the sheep, with a coat of newly grown wool,
was hurrying in indecent haste along the path to the courthouse. At three o'clock in the morning, they brought him back to his office, shorn and unconscious. The sheriff, the sportive deputy, the county clerk, and the gay attorney carried him, the chalk-faced man from the valley acting as escort. On the table, said one of them, and they deposited him there among the litter of his unprofitable books and papers. Yancey thinks a lot of a pair of deuces when he's liquored up, sighed the sheriff reflectively. Too much, said the gay attorney. A man has no business to play poker who drinks as much as he does. I wonder how much he dropped tonight. Close to two hundred. What I wonder is where he got it. Yance ain't had a cent for over a month, I know. Struck a client, maybe. Well, let's get home before daylight. He'll be all right when he wakes up, except for a sort of beehive about the cranium. The gang slipped away through the early morning twilight. The next eye to gaze upon the miserable gory was the orb of day. He peered through the uncurtained window, first deluging the sleeper in a flood of faint gold, but soon pouring upon the mottled red of his flesh a searching white summer heat. Gory stirred, half unconsciously, among the table's debris, and turned his face from the window. His movement dislodged a heavy law book which crashed upon the floor. Opening his eyes, he saw, bending over him, a man in a black frock coat. Looking higher, he discovered a well-worn silk hat, and beneath it, the kindly, smooth face of Colonel Abner Coltrane. A little uncertain of the outcome, the colonel waited for the other to make some sign of recognition. Not in twenty years had male members of these two families faced each other in peace. Gory's eyelids puckered as he strained his blurred sight toward this visitor, and then he smiled serenely. Have you brought Stella and Lucy over to play? He said calmly. Do you know me, Yancey? Asked Coltrane. Of course I do. You brought me a whip and a whistle in the end. So he had, twenty-four years ago, when Yancey's father was his best friend. Gory's eyes wandered about the room. The colonel understood. Lie still, and I'll bring you some, said he. There was a pump in the yard at the rear, and Gory closed his eyes, listening with rapture to the click of its handle and the bubbling of the falling stream. Coltrane brought a pitcher of the cool water and held it for him to drink. Presently Gory sat up, a most forlorn object, his summer suit of flax soiled and crumpled, his discreditable head tousled and unsteady. He tried to wave one of his hands toward the colonel. Ex excuse everything, will you? he said. I must have drunk too much whiskey last night and gone to bed on the table. His brows knitted into a puzzled frown. Out with the boys a while? asked Coltrane kindly. No, I went nowhere. I haven't had a dollar to spend in the last two months. Struck the demijohn too often, I reckon, as usual. 
Colonel Coltrane touched him on the shoulder. A little while ago, Yancey, he began, you asked me if I had brought Stella and Lucy over to play. You weren't quite awake then. You must have been dreaming you were a boy again. You are awake now, and I want you to listen to me. I have come from Stella and Lucy to their old playmate and to my old friend's son. They know that I am going to bring you home with me, and you will find them as ready with a welcome as they were in the old days. I want you to come to my house and stay until you are yourself again, and as much longer as you will. We heard of your being down in the world, and in the midst of temptation, and we agreed that you should come over and play at our house once more. Will you come, my boy? Will you drop our old family trouble and come with me? Trouble, said Gory, opening his eyes wide. There was never any trouble between us that I know of. I'm sure we've always been the best friends, but good Lord, Colonel, how could I go to your home as I am? A drunken wretch, a miserable, degraded, spendthrift and gambler? He lurched from the table into his armchair and began to weep maudlin tears, mingled with genuine drops of remorse and shame. Coltrane talked to him persistently and reasonably, reminding him of the simple mountain pleasures of which he had once been so fond, and insisting upon the genuineness of the invitation. Finally, he landed Gory by telling him he was counting upon his help in the engineering and transportation of a large amount of felled timber from a high mountainside to a waterway. He knew that Gory had once invented a device for this purpose, a series of slides and chutes upon which he had justly prided himself. In an instant, the poor fellow, delighted at the idea of his being of use to anyone, had paper spread upon the table and was drawing rapid but pitifully shaky lines in demonstration of what he could and would do. The man was sickened of the husks. His prodigal heart was turning again toward the mountains. His mind was yet strangely clogged, and his thoughts and memories were returning to his brain one by one, like carrier pigeons over a stormy sea. But Coltrane was satisfied with the progress he had made. Bethel received the surprise of its existence that afternoon when a Coltrane and a Gory rode amicably together through the town. Side by side they rode, out from the dusty streets and gaping townspeople, down across the creek bridge and up toward the mountain. The prodigal had brushed and washed and combed himself to a more decent figure, but he was unsteady in the saddle and he seemed to be deep in the contemplation of some vexing problem. Coltrane left him in his mood, relying upon the influence of changed surroundings to restore his equilibrium. Once, Gory was seized with a shaking fit and almost came to a collapse. He had to dismount and rest at the side of the road. The colonel, foreseeing such a condition, had provided a small flask of whiskey for the journey but when it was offered to him, Gory refused it almost with violence, declaring he would never touch it again. By and by he was recovered, and went quietly enough for a mile or two. Then he pulled up his horse suddenly and said, I lost two hundred dollars last night playing poker. Now where did I get that money? 
Take it easy, Yancey. The mountain air will soon clear it up. We'll go fishing first thing at the Pinnacle Falls. The trout are jumping there like bullfrogs. We'll take Stella and Lucy along and have a picnic on Eagle Rock. Have you forgotten how a hickory-cured ham sandwich tastes, Yancey, to a hungry fisherman? Evidently, the colonel did not believe the story of his lost wealth, so Gory retired again into brooding silence. By late afternoon, they had traveled ten of the twelve miles between Bethel and Laurel. Half a mile this side of Laurel lay the old Gory place. A mile or two beyond the village lived the coal trains. The road was now steep and laborious, but the compensations were many. The tilted aisles of the forest were opulent with leaf and bird and bloom. The tonic air put to shame the pharmacopoeia. The glades were dark with mossy shade and bright with shy rivulets winking from the ferns and laurels. On the lower side they viewed, framed in the near foliage, exquisite sketches of the far valley swooning in its opal haze. Coltrane was pleased to see that his companion was yielding to the spell of the hills and woods. For now they had but to skirt the base of Painter's Cliff, to cross Elder Branch and mount the hill beyond, and Gory would have to face the squandered home of his fathers. Every rock he passed, every tree, every foot of the rocky way was familiar to him. Though he had forgotten the woods, they thrilled him, like the music of Home Sweet Home. They rounded the cliff, descended into Elder Branch, and paused there to let the horses drink and splash in the swift water. On the right was a rail fence that cornered there and followed the road and stream. Enclosed by it was the old apple orchard of the home place. The house was yet concealed by the brow of the steep hill. Inside and along the fence, pokeberries, elders, Sassafras and sumac grew high and dense. At a rustle of their branches, both Gory and Coltrane glanced up and saw a long, yellow, wolfish face above the fence, staring at them with pale, unwinking eyes. The head quickly disappeared. There was a violent swaying of the bushes, and an ungainly figure ran up through the apple orchard in the direction of the house, zigzagging among the trees. That's Garvey, said Coltrane, the man you sold out to. There's no doubt, but he's considerably cracked. I had to send him up for moonshining once, several years ago, in spite of the fact that I believed him irresponsible. Why, what's the matter, Yancey? Gory was wiping his forehead, and his face had lost its color. Do I look queer, too? he asked, trying to smile. I'm just remembering a few more things. Some of the alcohol had evaporated from his brain. I recollect now where I got that two hundred dollars. Don't think of it, said Coltrane cheerfully. Later on we'll figure it all out together. They rode out of the branch, and when they reached the foot of the hill, Gory stopped again. Did you ever suspect I was a very vain kind of fellow, Colonel? he asked. Sort of foolish proud about appearances? The colonel's eyes refused to wander to the soiled, sagging suit of flax and the faded slouch hat. It seems to me, he replied, mystified but humoring him, I remember a young buck about twenty, 
with the tightest coat, the sleekest hair, and the prancingest saddle horse in the Blue Ridge. Right you are, said Gory eagerly, and it's in me yet, though it don't show. Oh, I'm as vain as a turkey gobbler, and as proud as Lucifer. I'm going to ask you to indulge this weakness of mine in a little matter. Speak out, Yancey. We'll create you Duke of Laurel and Baron of Blue Ridge, if you choose. And you shall have a feather out of Stella's peacock's tail to wear in your hat. I'm in earnest. In a few minutes we'll pass the house up there on the hill where I was born, and where my people have lived for nearly a century. Strangers live there now, and look at me. I am about to show myself to them ragged and poverty-stricken, a wastrel and a beggar. Colonel Coltrane, I'm ashamed to do it. I want you to let me wear your coat and hat until we are out of sight beyond. I know you think it a foolish pride, but I want to make as good a showing as I can when I pass the old place. Now what does this mean? said Coltrane to himself as he compared his companion's sane looks and quiet demeanor with his strange request. But he was already unbuttoning the coat, assenting readily, as if the fancy were in no wise to be considered strange. The coat and hat fitted Gory well. He buttoned the former about him with a look of satisfaction and dignity. He and Coltrane were nearly the same size, rather tall, portly, and erect. Twenty-five years were between them, but in appearance they might have been brothers. Gory looked older than his age. His face was puffy and lined. The colonel had the smooth, fresh complexion of a temperate liver. He put on Gory's disreputable old flax coat and faded slouch hat. Now, said Gory, taking up the reins. I'm all right. I want to ride about ten feet in the rear as we go by, colonel so that they can get a good look at me. They'll see I'm no back number yet, by any means. I guess I'll show up pretty well to them once more, anyhow. Let's ride on. He set out up the hill at a smart trot, the colonel following, as he had been requested. Gory sat straight in the saddle, with head erect, but his eyes were turned to the right, sharply scanning every shrub and fence and hiding place in the old homestead yard. Once he muttered to himself, Will the crazy fool try it, or did I dream half of it? It was when he came opposite the little family burying ground that he saw what he had been looking for, a puff of white smoke coming from the thick cedars in one corner. He toppled so slowly to the left that Coltrane had time to urge his horse to that side and catch him with one arm. The squirrel hunter had not overpraised his aim. He had sent the bullet where he intended, and where Gory had expected that it would pass, through the breast of Colonel Abner Coltrane's black frock coat. Gory leaned heavily against Coltrane, but he did not fall. The horses kept pace, side by side, and the colonel's arm kept him steady. The little white houses of Laurel shone through the trees half a mile away. Gory reached out one hand and groped until it rested upon Coltrane's fingers, which held his bridle. Good friend, he said, and that was all. Thus did Yancey Gory, as he rode past his old home, make 
considering all things, the best showing that was in his power. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Crisis of Conscience, Regular People and Uncomfortable Decisions, Three Short Stories by O. Henry. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. You'll be glad you did. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>